This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Frequently, architects come out of school not really having a practical world knowledge of what it means to build something. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Architects should work in construction. Today's episode is brought to you by Huber Engineered Wood, makers of zip system sheathing and tape. We recorded this episode live from their booth at the expo floor at the AIA 2019 Conference on Architecture in Las Vegas, Nevada. We apologize for the audio quality. It's a little noisy because everybody was enjoying happy hour. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about construction and architects and why architects should work in construction. We have a guest with us today, Nicholas Renard, an owner, architect, and registered residential contractor of DIG, an architect-led design build firm in Jacksonville, Florida, and my best friend. I would like to note that our guest provided us with that intro. That makes more sense. If I can have lots of best friends, you are absolutely my best friend. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. If that gets into the triple digits, you're in there. Still number one. Yeah, yeah you're in there. <laughs> okay, I have one regret. So since we're talking about architects and construction and the value that comes from actually spending time in the field, I'm going to tell you that I have one regret during the time I was in college and for the, the short run of years immediately afterwards, that I've never worked on a construction job site before in my life. Once I graduated from college, I went straight to work in an architect's office. And I drew up all kinds of things that I had literally never seen practically built before in my life. And there's a bit of a disconnect that happens. Those gaps have been filled in with my knowledge base now because I've been on job sites in the 25 years since I graduated. But when I came out of school and I started drawing stuff, everything was in the abstract. I mean, it was just lines on paper. So did either of you guys work? Let's start with Nick. No, I didn't. My extent was couple of little projects in studios and helping my dad as a kid but never for a contractor so i went i actually did work in construction when i was in high school i worked over the summers and then when i was in graduate school i worked for a millwork shop and i made custom millwork for two years in a wood shop in oregon that's awesome i got really into the detailed part of the work not a lot of time on large job sites but really into detailed construction work well, I think that's kind of interesting. So one of the questions I had, I knew that you went and worked in a, a wood shop. The question I had from that was, how does somebody just get that job? Most of the people I know that I say are like me, even though there's nobody like me. <laughs> but of the people that went to architecture school and they come out, if they get a job on a construction site, they're like picking up trash and pushing brooms and, hey, bring this stack of wood and pile it up over there. And I mean, there's a certain kind of skill set that you kind of need when you step foot onto a job site and you were in a very specific trade driven field. I mean, I just had some experience. I mean, I did some of that stuff on my own growing up and then a little bit of it when I was working in high school for the construction stuff. And then I just managed to kind of look into it. I guess I was a willing, warm body, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, I built a lot of my own furniture. How'd you get that job? I just went and applied. Really? I was like, yeah, I can do it. I could name off all of the equipment that was in the building. And so I was like, oh, okay. That's a bandsaw. Yeah. You know how to use that Yeah, I knew how to use all this stuff. That's how I'd been working either on my own or on a job site. So I knew some of it, but that's how I got the job. And Nick, you said you worked with your dad. I mean, we all work with our dad. So what does that mean? I mean, I poured a sidewalk with my dad. I held stuff for him. (laughs) And I watched. I'm really good at holding stuff. And watching. Yeah, and watching. (laughs) A trait that continues to this day. Yeah, but watching you're learning and you're seeing how 
I mean, his dad taught him the same way, so you get a, a sense for construction that way. True. What was the biggest thing you and your dad ever did? Massive deck in our backyard. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all wood frame. But he said, hey, young son, go hammer these nails in like this. And he showed you how to do a couple, and you went and did it? No, he said, hey, young son, hold the nails while I hammer this in. Hold, hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I built a, about a 1,200-square-foot deck in my backyard over a summer. Yeah, I've all done the, the same yeah, thing. So I'll tell you, it. do you remember those little books? They're like sunset books, and they're really specific, like home wiring yes. or basic plumbing I've got a series of those. I have a whole bunch of them. I went and bought them at the Half Price Bookstore. I have them in my studio. And so the first house I ever bought was built in 1917, and it was 1,068 square feet. So in, in Dallas, where there's lots of room, that's a small house. The deck that was on the back was like 8,000 square feet. <laughs> it was the biggest deck you've ever seen in your life. And it took up like 80% of our backyard. So I got myself one of those sunset books. I kind of looked at it and then I dismantled the whole deck and then I rebuilt it at about one eighth the size that it was. So other than working with your dad, did you do anything while you were up through graduation of architecture school, Nick? Not really, no. So when was the, when was the first time that you, as not an assistant to your father, when's the first time you took on a project? So it had been our first house in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. We bought a 1940s Cape and... How long ago was that? That was 2004. So uh, we just got married. My Virtually wife, the Stone Age. Yeah. My wife and I took it upon ourselves to completely almost gut the house and rebuild it. And it, I was glad my dad was closed because there were nights that I don't know how to sweat well. Can you come over here and sweat well this pipe for like, me? I thought he was like, sweat like good. Like, I don't know how to sweat well. I'm like, I'm a master at sweating. <laughs> no. All I need is heat. And sweat I sweat well. 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 well <laughs> welding so i'm horrible at it and every time i turn the water on all my welds leak oh. so fortunately my dad was able yeah to, you're bad at it yeah, yeah i'm horrible so my dad was able to jump out and help me do all that because he's i mean he's got a good wealth of knowledge on how to do a lot of things so what, what does your dad actually do i mean he's what? a pharmacist okay so that's a direct <laughs> that makes a lot of sense yeah it's a perfect so one-to-one I, one. I do think that there's i'm about to say a, a statement that i have no evidence to back this up but I can't, I'm shocked. Yeah, you should be. I do my research. Here's my broad sweeping statement. Our parents' generation, they did more stuff than I think my generation and younger generations do. My dad, for instance, he decided, like we had this huge attic, and we wanted to store some things up there, but it was not a really great environment because it was the attic. So he reframed everything and did the sheet. I mean, any of those kind of projects, he just did. Yeah. We put in our entire underground sprinkler system. We put in sidewalks. He was an engineer by trade, but he was methodical. And you got to keep in mind, this is before the era of YouTube videos on how to do stuff. So he would go get books or go to the library and kind of read up on these things and figure out, here's what I'm trying to do. How do I go about doing it? I don't think as many people do that unless they're affiliated in some way with the construction industry. I think it's good to be less and less, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the 18 years I lived with my parents, I don't think I ever saw anyone work on the house except my dad. And he did everything. Yeah, I don't think that's typical true now. Anymore. But I will go on to say that if you are somehow related with the architectural engineering construction community, you are far more likely to go, I can do this. And then you go try it. And just take it on, no matter whether or not you know what you're doing or not. Whether or not you know what you're doing. You go get yeah, a sunset figure book. figure it out. <laughs> I do have a rule, though. There's almost 
no project I will take on in my own house. I don't really like doing electrical work because I go, well, if I make a mistake, I might not be able to recover. (laughs) And then, and, or I burn down my house. I don't take that casually. And I don't really like doing plumbing. I'll put in toilets or install sinks or faucets, that kind of stuff. I don't do piping. The electrical I don't touch for the same reasons. I'm, I've been shocked. It hurts a little bit, but it's kind of fun. But like, I'm more concerned I'm going to do short something and burn the house down. Do you have somebody come back and check your work? Because that's something that we probably get called out on for us weekend warrioring these yeah. projects. I didn't pull a permit when I redid my deck. Yeah, I think it just depends on your municipality as to whether or not they So let's assume that, that Nick's municipality allows him to do his own plumbing work for the purposes of today's conversation. <laughs> for the sake of argument. <laughs> You're from where? Bismarck, North Dakota? That's where you do your work? Okay. Okay, so Andrew, I mean, you take on projects around your house. Oh, yeah, for sure. I built and remodeled an entire closet, tore down walls, and enclosed a garage. Oh, really? I'm talking about building two-bys, running AC duct, installing lighting, all of it. And I'm not afraid of electricity. It doesn't scare me. I don't like the plumbing that much. I don't like the piping, copper piping, or even PVC piping. I hate trying to get that stuff to stay, but I'm not afraid of electricity. So I do a lot of stuff around the house. All right, so I'm the only one that's afraid of electricity. No, I'm not, I'm not, is, I'm not ashamed. I'm afraid of burning down the house. Yeah. You said you like the electricity well, this, part. That part's a little fun, but like major electricity, I won't like try to swap out a breaker box. I'm not. Oh well, not yeah, I'm not do doing that. that either. But I'll touch everything inside the house. No, and you know what? It is the position of this podcast that you shouldn't do that either. <laughs> you should get a licensed professional to do that scope of work for you. Exactly. Yeah, Nick. I would. Okay, so let me ask you this. Now that we've kind of established that we're crafty, but we're not necessarily... Maybe I should go handy. We're handy. Yeah, there you go. You know, but there's a threshold to our skill level, how we've presented it so far. So let me ask you this. Do you think that working in construction would be of benefit to an architect who's going to do, you know, proper practice? Like spending time on a job site, seeing how projects are run, seeing how things flow, the work? Absolutely. Yes, Okay, I didn't mean that as a yes or no question. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be extremely helpful. When you go to school, you just draw lines. We'd start to draw wall sections. We didn't necessarily understand every, you know, we saw a book, and we'd draw lines to emulate what we saw in the book. Yeah. But we didn't always understand the extent of what flashing is, a double top plate, a hurricane clip, and all that stuff. Sure. Well, okay, let me ask you this. So here's another way of asking the same question, but from a different direction. So there's the abstract, perfect, idealized world that most architects function in. I mean, when I draw it, it could be dimensioned to one 256th of an inch, which we know that's not a realistic, achievable dimension in a real world environment. I mean, that's five times over the thickness of somebody's pencil who drew a mark on there. So I know that when I... When I started really getting into how things got built, I had to draw it. I think this is part of the programming that I went through because of my education. I didn't just figure it out in my head. So I was drawing an AutoCAD. I would draw the outside face of the wall, then I would offset a line three and five eighths, and then I would offset it for the airspace. I would build my walls in 2D AutoCAD so that I knew exactly how big it was because I was drawing to absolute tolerance and perfection because my knowledge base was lacking enough to understand that's not really necessary to that level. You want it to meet the measured and standards that are set in place. But we draw to perfection, and that's not achievable when you're out in a job site working. And there takes some time before you start to realize what you're asking for versus what you're drawing and what the nuanced difference between the two are. 
Yes. And it goes back to you saying, should a student work? And I think, yeah, a student should work in construction, but I also think you should also spend some time working in construction where you actually live so that you can understand the capability of the tradesmen there. That's a good clarification. Yeah. It's not just work where you're going to school and then you move to a different climate that has different construction techniques in it. But I still think it's okay, though. I still think oh, yeah. getting any exposure to that is good. The way that I always used to explain it to like the young people in my office about the idea of tolerances is the larger the project, right. I mean, or the larger the scale of whatever it is you're drawing and designing. So, for instance, a parking lot, you're talking about six inches of tolerance. And when you get down to millwork, you are talking about an eighth of an inch or a sixteenth of an inch. In between there, that allowable tolerance varies based on the scale of what you're dealing with. So there's no sense in having a wall that's one sixteenth of a dimension because the wall is never within one sixteenth of anything. There's this idea of scaling your accuracy. In it. Well, we, we would that. do our dimension control to that. But I do remember I worked at RTKL years and years and years ago. Yeah. And one of the very first projects they had me work on was this mall that was in a bedroom community of Dallas. And to do a lap around this mall was over, it was a mile. And so when we did our dimension controls, we set them to 256 of an inch, but we didn't have any dimension strings that, I mean, they all landed eighth of an inch was the tolerance that we would work towards, but it was dimensioned much finer because. With that eighth of an inch could add up for. Yeah. Cause yeah. If, I, if I'm off by three, 256 of an inch, 400, 500 times as I'm circumnavigating this gigantic building, I might be off by a foot by the, by the time, time it all time. adds up. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But we would never want to have a dimension string to that level of specificity make its way into the job site because now all of a sudden someone's going to look at that and go, that's ridiculous. They're ridiculous. I'm not going to pay attention to this as much as maybe I should. Definitely. There's a, there'd be a disconnect there. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. Understanding the differences between the exactness of the drawing environment versus the built environment takes a period of time in your life before you make that segue. Like when you're out of school and this is the perfection, which I think is really born out of a fear of messing something up. So you drill down to make it as specific as possible. I mean, that's why I did it, you know, is to make sure that it was right. But then that starts to let go. Why does that change? What allows us to move from the exactness that we start with to the value we see, we call it construction tolerance in my office, that you start to work and draw and design towards construction tolerance. I mean, I think it's just time. I mean, I think it's just working, but over time you learn that. And I think towards this conversation, working construction allows you to get there faster. You spend all the time in school looking at all these architects that have very low tolerances and have extremely high budgets and all these perfect projects. That's awesome, but most of the projects that we do are not these perfect projects. And we all have budgets. And you start to learn that wood's not always straight, perfectly straight. You know, your concrete footing, those guys don't care how straight it is. It, it kind of lines up, and they're happy with that. I can absolutely see that, that that would be true. One of the things, when I brought up the idea of construction tolerance, is how that construction process over time actually could impact your skill as a designer because you'll start to design in ways for the contractor in the field to build something that does not demand perfection in its execution. Because that's really kind of what we're talking about. When I'm sitting in my office and I'm drawing digitally, everything's perfect. The math is spot on always. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when it goes out to the job site, if I've designed it or detailed it in such a way that requires that same level of absolute perfection, almost always you end up with a problem. With time, I think you condition yourself 
to leave space and gaps to make up for error. So there's places that if something goes awry, well, we can fix it here. And you can also look at it and say, I'm going to change the way these two materials come together. I'm going to overlap them in a certain way so that as things shift or move, I haven't introduced a new problem because in my perfect idealized drawing world, nothing moves or expands or contracts. That's part of the design process. But that understanding, I think, really would be expedited if working in a job site was part of was the requirements, was part of the curriculum right. of our universities, which it wasn't when I was in school. It's still not, I don't think, for most. There's very few schools that do that. There's design build schools or they have design build programs that are really active, but it's still a very small majority in the academic world. Talking about that construction tolerances idea, I remember when I first started doing work and we were doing some concrete block walls. I mean, you doing work as the architect. As the architect, yeah. When I started my professional job and I was doing some drawings for a school or something, we had this 100-foot-long block wall. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to make this work. And so I had CAD every block. I'd drawn out every block with the 3-8-inch joint so that it was going to be the exact perfect length and it was going to be I've this I've done number. that. I know. I used to do it a lot. And then you get out in the field and you realize the joints aren't ever that perfect or the blocks actually have construction tolerances in them where they're yeah, the, off by an eighth and, yeah. and over time it, I planned this wall out exactly this dimension so that we wouldn't be wasting block. It just it never works because it's impossible. It's easier for you to do in the computer because everything's perfect. You know that makes me think of since I was just in Chicago we went and did a bunch of walk around and tours of Frank Lloyd Wright work. He was a big fan of the flush vertical joint in his masonry and the raked horizontal joint Mm-hmm. And he would dye the mortar in the vertical joints so that you really read that horizontality of the masonry. We have never gone so far as to dye the vertical, but we've done the raked horizontal joints before. And the problem what we ran into when we did that was if a block had like a chip in it or if it had a slight camber to it, the expression of that horizontality, that horizontal joint was so exacerbated that... We probably had to buy 40% more brick for it not to jump out and be an issue. And the contractor had to almost dry stack every single course of block before they mortared it in place to know that it didn't waffle and wane in and out of plumb with the rows that were below it. It was so labor intensive. And that was really born from the, I have an idea. Frank Lloyd Wright did it. (laughs) Right? Frank did it. Yeah, I can do it. But the realities were the thing that I want to move to next. It required the contractor, the guys doing the work, to be craftsmen for the execution of that detail to come off. It turned out it really had nothing to do with how we drew it, but to the sensitivity and the ability of the masons that were laying up that wall. Because they're the ones making the judgment, does this block work, does it not work, is it getting too thick? Because it's not just how long is it might be off, how thick it is might vary from block to block. Because we were using, I think they were four inches tall by 12 inches wide burnished block units. Oh, uh-huh. And the longer they get, the more they might vary in their thickness as they go through the kiln drying process. So those masons meant everything to the success of that particular project. So as we've gone through our careers, that comes that time when you start to value the quality of the contractor and the craftsman that you have on your job sites a lot more and you rely on them and we have a saying or maybe it's a mentality in our office that 
we try to design something enough to where we can have a conversation with the people that do that all day, every day. I like to think I'm pretty good at metalwork, but I would always defer to someone who did metalwork every day, all day long. So if I say, hey, this is a 3HN thick piece of steel plate and I want to weld it at the bottom third, is it going to be so hot that it's going to warp the top of my plate? So I need to attach something to keep it in plane. I don't have the practical experience to definitively say this is how that could solve until I actually do it on one of my projects and I have the ability to learn that from one of the subs that's working on the project. I also think that's one of the other benefits is if you work on a job site as an architect, your ability to communicate with the trades people and have an understanding for the little nuanced moves that they make puts you in a better position to ask questions moving forward with other areas and other trades on how best to incorporate them into your creative process. That's true. I think one of the things about being on the job site is being able to see how things are fabricated. To me, it's more about an order of sequence because I had a lot of trouble and a lot of young people that I know that come through my office have a lot of trouble realizing there's an order of operations of how things get installed. And just because I can draw this piece of metal in this configuration and I can get it to work and I can see that there's this layer and that layer and it's all separated, that doesn't mean that it doesn't require one person doing something and coming back and waiting for another person. And there's a sequence of operations that you have to learn to adjust to so that you know framer guy is going to come in and do all of this. And then guess what? He's probably leaving, right. going to the next job. So how do we make it so that the design facilitates that in a way that doesn't require him to come back? Or if he does, there's a couple of things that he's coming back for, not just this one little tiny detail. Sure. Well, that actually at the very end of the job. Right. So. That actually has an impact on the budget of the project in a way that yeah, also allows you to say, well, I'm going to design something. But if I do it in such a way that where I can either minimize the trades that are coming in by solving this problem differently as opposed to having bringing in a specialist to do this one little sliver of something so that somebody can either connect two things together. I mean, it's another thing we see in our office a lot. The people that don't have practical experience on job sites, which is something else that we should actually spend a minute talking about, and that is getting the people in our employ on job sites so they can get some of this experience because they don't get that experience coming up through school for the most part. But trying to get them to understand that, hey, these decisions aren't just design considerations, they're budget considerations, and they do make a difference. I agree. I always try to take young people in my office, all of them, out to the job if I go to a job, and it's, if it's local enough. If it's right. around and I can take them to the job site, even if they're not working on that job, they're going to come with so that they can get exposure to what's happening on the job site. Nick, do you you have a small firm? Yeah, it's just two of us. Yeah, and I know because you sent me a picture you're pretty hands-on. You actually swing a hammer on job site in your projects from time to time. We do, yeah. A lot of times it's either the jobs that people don't want to do or the jobs that people don't know how to do. You mean contractors? Yes. Yeah. So, or we just can't find somebody to do something quickly. Like We often put our own floor protection in. Last week I was putting fry reglet base mold for flush base in. The trim carpenter didn't want to do it. The drywall guy didn't want to do it. And... We only have so much time to find someone to do it. Otherwise, we have to do it. Is the economy, the workflow down there so spectacular that guys can just say, Man, I don't want to do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we really? have a hard time. If it's out of somebody's realm of what they're comfortable doing, they just don't do it because they have five other jobs lined up where they can just do what they do every day. We have issues sometimes getting a sub to come do a project in its entirety, but I've never had to deal with them cherry-picking portions of the scope that they might be responsible for. 
Yeah. It happens a lot. That's kind of amazing. It happens a lot to me on commercial jobs. They'll pull parts out of their contract with the GC about what they're going to do, what they're not going to do. And a lot of times, depending on how big the project is, that bit gets lost. And nobody picks it up. And you come back when it's time to have it done, they're like, well, we didn't pick it up. We didn't pick it up. We didn't pick it up. So do nobody you, picked it up. At that point, do you just go, well, GC, it's on you either way. I don't care who you get to do it. But there's no option as to whether or not it gets done. For sure. It's just, it's a slowdown. Something happens and it causes a delay in the project because they got to find somebody to come in and do that. Lay down the fry base. When we're acting as the builder. That's just well, money it, out of your pocket. It, sto- it stops with us and now we're delaying the project because we couldn't find somebody. Right. So do we delay the project or we just pick up our tools and do it ourselves? Well, when you're the, when you're the contractor, I yeah. totally get that. I got to get dirty here. When I'm just in the role of the architect, I don't do much work on my sites. That just goes with liability and all that. I don't want to get in the, unless a GC's contractor with me to do something. Yeah. Then we're not going to do it. Did either of you want to be a contractor? For a time, I did when I was growing up. Yeah, I did. Did you? I never wanted to be a contractor growing up, but every time on a job site, a little like, did I miss my calling? <laughs> right. I, I love being on job sites. I love talking to those people. I love getting down there. I, I have no problems going. What's that? Why'd you do that? Like, that's not how we drew it. Why did that change? And it's never adversarial. I view it as here's an opportunity for me to learn something. And I'll tell you that attitude that we've been bringing to job sites, so I'll I'll speak for myself, that I bring to a job site makes things very collaborative. I don't really have too many contractors that I would describe as difficult or unpleasant. And they don't even say like, hey, we don't want you talking to the subs. Like the flow of conversation needs to always go through this particular channel. It's almost like they look at me and go, he's harmless. <laughs> he's just I'm out sure there asking questions. Do. He doesn't know what he's doing anyway. You're a little more fortunate than I am. Doing public work, I get stuck sometimes with whoever the contractor is, and it has little to do with their abilities. It's a low budget who came in with a low bid sometimes on public work. Sure. But even in those situations, I try really hard to be collaborative, but sometimes it doesn't work. Life of an Architect will be back in just a moment. We're sitting here with Ryan Stevenson, the business development manager for Huber Engineered Woods. Huber Engineered Woods is the building solutions company responsible for Vantech subfloor and sheathing, as well as zip system wall and roof sheathing. Ryan has spent the last five years focusing on the evolution of building envelope, code changes, and continuing education for architects. So we're here to talk a little bit about the zip system sheathing and tape, and that's really kind of your wheelhouse. So tell us what kind of things we need to know about the system. Really all we tried to do was simplify the building envelope. So we created a structural panel with an integrated weather resistant barrier. What we're trying to do is make it easier for all trades in the field to install the product properly and faster and more efficiently. Designing the building tighter, better envelope, more weather resistant and tighter for air movement. So one of the things I know about the zip system is that it's really meant to kind of speed up the whole construction process. It does, you're not doing two trips around the building. You're installing the building When you nail the panel up as you would any other structural panel, your weather resistant barrier is already integrated into it. Then you're using a three and three quarter inch roll of tape to tape those seams, turning a two person job into a one person job, making more efficient and condensing your building cycle. And that's really important with the way that we're building projects today and the speed at which we want to move. I know the zip system, the sheathing and tape installs in just two steps, isn't that correct? 
Yeah, it's correct. Well, three steps. You have to roll the tape. That's always our focus, installing the tape and rolling the tape properly. Well, the tape is what makes the system work completely, right? I mean, keeps the envelope sealed up. It is. It's the secret sauce. We have an acrylic system uh, that has a 30-year overall system warranty by taping it and getting that airtight structure. It's one of the things I know about when you use the house wrap application system. It, it has a built-in weather-resistant barrier, and it actually comes with a 180-day exposure warranty. Is that correct? It is, and that's crucial. I focus in the multifamily sector, and you need that six-month window. A lot of products out in the market have a 90-day warranty system. That's just not enough time to allow before you button up the building. So tell us about the structural one-rated sheathing panel itself. It's just an enhanced value, and it's part of how we design the board with the moisture-resistant properties that the wood flakes have. It also adds a structural one value, which means we have about a 30% better shear rating than other products. The other thing we do is introduce long lengths. So we have 8-foot, 9-foot, and 10-foot as standard sizes, but we'll also make any length panel designed oh, really? by the end user. Minimum orders, of course, extended lead times, all the exciting stuff about manufacturing, but it can lead to a better structure and a better building. That's nice, a really long panel, a single piece. For sure. Tell me about the tape panel seams. The tape panel seams really are, are critical for sealing that envelope. If you have a loose overlay and any air gets behind that, you immediately have a channel through any of those seams. And that's where air leakage happens. Absolutely, and we're trying to stop that. We're all, we're all trying to get the tightest buildings possible at this point, um, and taping the seams allows for that. I mean, that's really the way the construction industry is going, is trying to create tighter, more efficient buildings. Yeah, envelopes to keep everything out and everything in. <laughs> yeah. 100% controlled interior environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Huber Engineer Woods has a variety of approved CEU courses to educate architects on tighter building envelopes, mitigating moisture intrusion, resiliency, and more. Let one of their sales representatives come to your office and give a lunch and learn. I know that would be a valuable process because understanding the systems really is kind of key to people specifying and using them correctly. They know what to look for when they're on the job site. To find your local sales representative, please visit www.huberwood.com forward slash contact dash us but we'll put a link at the bottom of the episode here for you to get that link our ceu courses we do have wide portfolio so we do have eight to nine courses currently including a, a new one that i think's really great for the industry which is our truck and trailer event which is the mobile marketing event that you've seen over here that we have approved for ceu yeah we so, saw that on the floor here absolutely so we can actually bring that into your office it allows your architects to come outside and actually work with products understanding installation of existing flashing methods they may be using versus options that we provide or the right way to integrate products, which that's where your system always fails is at an integration points. And you can get any one of these eight or nine CU courses as a lunch and learn to your office, can't you? Absolutely, absolutely. We have seven business development managers like myself that focus on multifamily and then roughly 30 salespeople nationwide covering individual markets. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you stepping in with us today to kind of help us understand the zip sheathing system a little bit better. Perfect. Thank you. Of course. Huber Engineered Woods, LLC, strives to create innovative products to meet evolving building industry needs. Each product delivers outstanding performance, easy installation, and greater strength in single-family, multifamily, and light commercial products. Thanks again, Ryan. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yep, thanks a lot. Do you guys endeavor to be on your job sites a lot? Daily. <laughs> yeah, because I, I... I'm I, not daily. I was going to round-robin this because... Say, like, when I go interview for a project, sometimes the potential client will say, what's your approach towards construction administration or what happens when the job? Because some people think that once we do the drawings and they go out the door, we're, we're out of the picture. Yeah. And we generally don't do projects if we can't be involved in the construction administration. But, however, they say, how often do you come on the job site? 
when we worked on a percentage, I was there all the time. You know, I'd go before work. I'd go on my lunch breaks, partly because I just wanted to see the stuff. I wanted to go. I didn't need to be there. I've been very lucky. Some of the contractors I work with are fantastic. Like if I won the lottery, I'd use them to build my house. I mean, that's how good they are. And so it was never me going to check up on. You're, you're the top of that list, too. Dude. You wouldn't no call worry. your best friend to come build your house in Dallas? I would call my best friend. Okay. It may not be you, best friend. It might be <laughs> one of my other best friends. I didn't go there to check up on their quality of their work. I went there because I wanted to see that particular phase of the construction and going in so that I could understand it better. So you build, Nick, you, yeah. you, you're building some of your own projects. Yeah. And I know even the other day we were talking about before you headed out to National Convention, you had to swing by a job site. Yep. Right. So how often do you go to job sites and how long are you there when you're the architect? That's always difficult with us because we say the same thing. that We want to be involved through construction. And every client's like, yeah, yeah, rah, rah, rah. Some builders then come in and we find ourselves not being called. And all of a sudden the client's like, no, we don't want you here anymore. And I've actually, I had two clients fire me after they got their permit set because they didn't want us there for CA. Really? Yeah. It, and <laughs> I made the one come to apologize to me before I go to his house. <laughs> he actually did before I'd actually go to the construction site. I never went. Florida's the Wild West, apparently, for this kind yeah. of stuff, man. Jeez. But then we have others that want us there at least twice a week. I mean, I always tell people, since I have my architect's hat on, that hiring, say like me, I'll speak specifically about myself, hiring me for construction administration is the best money they'll spend on the entire project, right? Because it's a lot cheaper to, to solve problems on paper than it is when there's a crew of eight guys standing around wondering what they're supposed to do. This is easy, and I'll save more money then I will end up costing them during that phase of the project. But I don't charge them for these glory visits that I do that are for my benefit. That's not something that we look at. Because honestly, I don't want them to say, oh, you're coming out here too much. I say, no, you're not paying me for this. This is for me. This is for me. We have the great fortune that most of our sites are probably within 15 minutes of my studio. And all my projects, or 85% of my projects right now I can get from the furthest south to the furthest north in 20 minutes. So it's easy for us to go to one and just kind of stop along our way all the way to the other one. Andrew does not have that lecture. <laughs> no, I do not. Mine are like five hours this direction, seven hours this direction, two hours that direction. Yeah, no, and we, so, we have a few of those, and we don't get to those that often. I mean, on those situations, though, I still, most of the time, because they're public projects, and so I tell my clients it'll be at a minimum... It'll be every two weeks that I'll be on a job site, essentially every other week. Well, since they're so far away, you don't do pop-ins. Like, you're probably there for a while. Yeah, and it's scheduled. Sometimes I'll hit two or three because they're a three-hour, a four-hour, and a five-hour, so I can get them all and come back. Yeah, I don't do pop-ins, but at the same time, I also tell them that even on those is if there's an issue, I can be there within 24 hours. The thing I was going to bring up was I was just sitting here thinking about some of the projects that I've tackled in my own house. And Granted, as I've gotten older, my ability to pay other people to do it has increased, and my physical desire to bend Rent over my back for yeah, three hours is diminished. But on occasion, I have lots of tools, and I love them, and I use them, and even little things. Like I remember, we were gonna rip up some carpet in the front room of my house. I actually wrote a blog post on it, and we decided that we were gonna grind the concrete down and not come back with carpet. But the guy who was quoting the work, I was going to have to bring in a different sub to do all the prep work, tear out the carpet, get rid of the tack strips, you know, remove any baseboard, 
like a little quarter round. So I was like, I'll do that. I'll just do that myself. So even the little things like me pulling out those tack strips out of a concrete slab, it took me like five hours because I swear to you, there was 8,000 tacks for every 12 inches. Mm-hmm. I go, did they get paid by the tack? And of course, as I go through it, I went and I tried all these different kind of tools. How can I do this with the least amount of damage of popping out all these little inverted Divots. volcanoes yeah. into my slab? It was the sort of thing that humbling is not the right word, but being more appreciative of the little things that have to happen that nobody really spends much time about that somebody has to do, but that adds to your knowledge base. Like now I know if I have a house project and we're like, hey, let's just polish the floor and it has carpet on it. I know what's coming because I've seen it. And in this case, I've physically gone through the process myself. Yeah. I don't think there's an architect walking the planet that wouldn't acknowledge the value or benefit from people spending time on the job sites from an educational standpoint. But I do know there are some architects that want to limit their time on a job site because of the exposure they have, the liability that comes with seeing things and not doing something about it. I hear that argument from time to time, but I just take the opposite approach. If I'm there more often, I can hopefully see and notice those things and take care of them at the time that I feel like me being there helps actually, like it decreases my liability if I'm there more often. In our world, most of our work's residential and there's, yeah, there's liability, but it's, we've never seen a project go to litigation for any of our houses. And we have quite a few in our development now. Lucky you. However, (laughs) I I once was sued as the project architect for a, a condo project the issue was I didn't live in Florida and I wasn't a licensed architect when the project started construction, but they still sued me anyway. And so my state on liability is I'd rather be there. You can get sued for anything in our world, even for projects you're not involved in. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed and we were let out of the suit, but it still costs a lot of money. Sure. One of the contractors I work with, he gets his son to come work with him every summer and he gets paid $12 an hour. 10 bucks an hour to sweat it out. And he does the gruntiest of grunt work. I mean, it's like, hey, lay down all this ram board on top of the wood floor. So he's laying that stuff out and taping it for three or four days in a row. And then it's like, okay, sweep this up and wipe this down. And it's grunt work. But even when I watched him doing it, part of me was like, he gets to see all this stuff. Like, he's here all day seeing this stuff happen. And that's when I go, man, maybe I should have been a contractor. My kids go to my sites all the time. They're six and eight. They'll like, Dad, can we take a bucket today and pick up trash? Because they know every bucket they fill up, they get five dollars. Nice. So it incentivizes and it helps keep the site a little clean. But they're eager to go. Our first house we built was in 2014, and my son would have been three, I think, at the time. He was there with me almost every day. That first house that my wife and I bought, the one that I ripped down the 8,000 square foot deck and rebuilt it. My wife was traveling. The job she had at the time, she traveled every week. So she'd fly out Monday mornings and she'd fly back either Thursday night or on Fridays. And believe it or not, I'm not really a go out to the bars during the week sort of person. I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't go out on the weekends either. I do. (laughs) I believe all of it. So in this old house, all I did when I'd get home at night is I I retrimmed the house I replaced door hardware. I replaced and rehung windows. 
You know, I just kind of dismantled the house room by room and piece by piece and put it back. What I learned on that job site, which was my own house, was the smallest scratch on the surface of what I ended up coming to realize I'd been missing from not ever having gone on job sites ever. I mean, when I was a kid, I go on a job site and really it was about what kind of stuff could I find and take home. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you know what I really loved? The nail gun nails where there's like 50 nails and they're all kind of glued together. In the plastic strip, yeah. I, no plastic strip. They're just kind of glued together. For some reason, I thought that was like finding gold. <laughs> and I'd bring it home and do nothing with it. And eventually, I guess my mom would throw it away. Some sleeves of nails because they look cool. They did look cool. I thought everything about the smell of it, the walking around a house that didn't have walls but the framing was in place, I thought that was like the coolest. That was vacation. Yeah, that was always fun. It, my, we could have gone somewhere and my parents say, okay, every day from 8 till 5, you're just going to wander around these half-built houses. I'm like, I'm in. I'm done. This is awesome. It's the best. And I, all I would do, though, is look for stuff that I could steal. I did that too. I just didn't steal. <laughs> I looked for stuff. I looked for trash. I could steal. Yeah. I didn't take tools, Nick. I didn't take I've never stolen from construction site. I did. I, I do now when the general contractors let me. I'm like, man, I need some wood. I'm trying to work on something at home. You got any spare stuff? And they'd be like, yeah, come on. Yeah, I've never done I'll that. I'll take it with permission. Well, I, t- I pick up stuff now that people leave behind if I yeah. think it's worthwhile keeping. I love this Coca-Cola bottle. <laughs> that kind of I stuff need a new five-gallon bucket. The only thing I loved more than finding those nail gun nails glued together was magnets. Magnets. Yeah, right. not not. This is not job site related. <laughs> well, I was like, okay. Okay. This is I was just, like, will you find those on a job this site? This is magnets? just finding. I mean, when you're a kid and you find stuff. Oh yeah, if for you sure. found magnets, it was the best thing ever. Oh my god, greatest day ever. So would you go to a friend's house and steal magnets off? The no, fridge? I didn't. St- I was. I didn't do. steal yeah. stuff. No, I will say there was this guy. I can't remember his name. He was like an eight-year-old dumpster diver. <laughs> and we would go up and down the alleys of our residential neighborhood. We didn't root through people's trash, but we'd look what was set out by the trash. Just on top. Well, no, not in the trash, just like out for the trash guys to get it. So if someone's throwing away a lawnmower or something, we might take it and then pull the engine off it and try to, you know, like attach like a bucket seat to it. <laughs> like we were going to make a go-kart. Like we would try to just take trash and do stuff with it. Yeah. I found a bag of magnets once. It was the greatest day of my life. I remember it was a sunny day. <laughs> I was in fourth grade, and they were like these cylindrical ones. Yeah. You know, so like you push the two north ends, and they would repulse. I'd bring them to school and play with them on my desk. I mean, magnets. All right, man. You guys don't love magnets? I do, but not as much as you, apparently. No. Fourth grade, Bob. Magnets, they were better than, it was better than girls. Fourth in grade. fourth grade, for sure. Yeah. Magnets. The glued nail sleeve was better than girls in fourth grade okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this bit up because we have since you're our special guest we have a special hypothetical to do today outstanding so the value i think from architects working on job sites it doesn't have to be profound knowledge just an understanding that the differences between what you experience and what you draw in your idealized world in the office is really pretty far off from what happens on a job site the nuances of it and it takes a fair amount of time for us to get the practical experience and really this has to do with the experience we get that gets us old enough to where we can be the people that go to the job site 
a lot of firms, you're right out of school. They're not sending you to the job site because you don't know anything, so you don't know what you're looking at. And you're chained to a desk drafting anyway. That's right. So at a certain point, you not evolve. Not in my office. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Not in mine either. You're not in mine either. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a lie now. Okay, all right. We're going to move on. So we're going to go to the hypothetical. Are you excited about your first? Yeah, I'm, I'm nervously excited. Nervous? Yeah. I need Andrew to go first. Though. You think it's going to be bad? We can let Andrew go first. Okay, so here's the hypothetical. If you could learn any one skill in the world in an instant, like pressing a button and snap, you've got it, what would that skill be? So I have to go first? And it's any skill at all? It can be any skill you want. I mean, it has to be like a real flying is not a skill. Oh, you just, that's a loophole. No, it's not a, <laughs> it's gonna such a cheater. Self-levitation. No, um. not a skill. <laughs> okay, let me see. Any skill in the world instantly. Well, I'm assuming we're talking about you're going to learn this skill with the utmost of its ability. You're a master. You're at a master. It. You're a master. At it, right? You may not be the best in the world. But, yeah, but you've but got complete mastery of this skill. Mastered it. Absolutely. It's hard for me to decide whether I want to do something practical or whether I want to do something that's just completely at random. But, hey, that's a cool party trick. Why are you hemming and hawing over this? You know what it. the question was going to be. Uh, I didn't. I forgot to read this. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, you want me to go first? Sure, go first. Because I think this is easy for me. Okay. I'd be interested to know if you saw this coming. The absolute mastery I would want is playing the piano. No, didn't see that one. That's nice. That's not yeah. bad. And because you love to hound me on this, and I'm going to say don't hound <laughs> me on it, but there's this. I'm, gonna. I'm very musically inclined to begin with. I can play a lot of different instruments. This is true. I have a borderline profound knowledge on, of music. It helps when your mom's a music teacher and you start, you've been playing musical instruments your whole life. But I can play piano with one hand. I can't play two hands. Like I never learned how to play the piano, but I have really good pitch. So I can sit down at the piano and I can figure out tunes and melodies. And the idea that I could just sit down at the piano and just play it for my entire life, it's something I wish I could do. So this is an easy one for me. Interesting. All right. But not like a saxophone because you know what? How often are you just going to stumble across a saxophone and be able to pull it out and play it? See, I could like walk into the lobby hotel and, and just play sit it down. and I bring know. people to tears. This is it. <laughs> Right, so yes, there is that little bit. I want people to know that I'm good at playing the piano too. It's not just enough for me to be good at playing the piano. I didn't I wanna, even go there. I, I know. didn't even go there. I know. You I went brought there. it up yourself. I know. But I want people to benefit from my mastery of this skill. See, because I'm a giver. <laughs> All right. Do you need more time, Nick? You want to go? I can go. All right, Nick, Nick can go. Here. I'm going to talk it out a little bit, but I don't need to go to the music because I'm a phenomenal dancer, so I can stay away from that. I got the music. You're like, I've already got that skill. A skill I'd like... But Andrew touched on it a couple of podcasts ago. Would be able to draw by hand elegantly, but I'm not going to steal Andrew. That one didn't count. If you listen to the episode, count, that's right. It didn't count. Wanna... No, he he didn't say. <laughs> I loopholed that the, one of the pen. I loopholed that one. I was like, I can hold that pen like a mofo. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't mean you can draw can, with the surgeon's precision. Yeah, I come down in both. I think mine are a little more practical. One would be to be amazing at speaking Spanish pick up that because so many of our subcontractors they speak Spanish so it'd be awesome to be able to communicate with them and that's strictly practical I would never just go someplace and start talking Spanish but that I, would just I be bet you I bet you would if you could probably I know I would but I need a lot more well I was gonna say wherever it could put me someplace to talk Spanish I would go do it for sure donde esta la casa de Pepe 
but I've, <laughs> I've, I've kind of remedied that because my project manager, she speaks Spanish, so she can communicate. That's why she gets to go to job sites all the time. So your skill is hire a, hiring hire translators. Hire, hire translators. <laughs> so it, it goes back to a little bit of jealousy from Andrew is I would want to be a phenomenal woodworker and just be able to build anything on wood. Okay. So it's like perfect jointry. That's yeah, a ter- all that. it's such a terrible answer. <laughs> no, it isn't. See, he's bleeding. He's so disappointed. If it's not his answer, it's terrible. No. <laughs> if you haven't learned that yet, <laughs> who wants to play the piano? That was the wrong answer. You could what build, are we you do build a beautiful chair, hey, or hey, you could play the piano. There's all these people that are watching us record this. When yeah. I said piano, no less than fifty all nodded their head. They're all <laughs> like, "He's right. That is that was the right answer." <laughs> you no. need a, the skill of multiplication because it's like five. No, they they, they left. left. They so left you started talking, said piano. Yeah, and you said, "Well, this and maybe that," and they're like, "All right, we're out." Because he's not going to say piano. <laughs> no, I wouldn't yeah. say piano. It would. It would be. The... See, I'm right there. I'm right. Piano. See that guy right there. <laughs> no, that's terrible. <laughs> Xylophone. Mine was going to be cooking. I think. Cooking. If I could master the skill of cooking, because I like to cook right now, but it's all pretty rudimentary. I mean, I can manage. If I was top level chef. I, I wonder would love if, to be able if to you do mastered that. eating, does that mean you could like eat without gaining weight? Is that because maybe I would <laughs> change my answer? I, I'm going to go with no, cooking because to, I like you have to, to cook. Master, master exercise, metabolism. Yeah, I'm out yeah, on metabolism. that. I'm going to master, master the metabol- skill of metabolism. <laughs> well, no, if you mastered it, you'd enjoy it. Just like playing the piano, if you mastered, you're going to do it. Okay, so if you know cooking, back yeah. to me now. Cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we forgot. Andrew's still here. I'm still here because I would love to be able to cook just whenever and whatever I wanted to cook. Because I do like to eat. I think everybody here likes to eat. I like to, to eat. eat fancy food sometimes. But yeah. it would be nice to be able to cook really nice. Like burgers? It's a, Yeah, burgers probably. No, It's a skill that I have, but that I wish was on another level than what it is right now. All right. That's I think nice. that should probably be it. Execution. Do you cook, Nick? Sometimes. There's a few things I cook, but my, my wife's a phenomenal cook, so she does most of it. Oh, well, then you're lucky. Yeah. I thought you might have been like pit master. I want to master I already that feel like brisket. I... I'm already far enough along down that path that that would be a waste. Like, I'm not... That's a waste of your gift? No, I'm not. There's <laughs> The people that are good at it are way better than I am. But I'm better than most people. So I think that would be a waste. That's just a common thought. You've eaten my barbecue. I know. Right? It's not bad. It's not bad. You'd go so far as to say it's good. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. So I go, I want to take something that I really want to be good at, that I'm not good at at all, yeah. the most bang for my pressing the free, button skill. free gift book yeah my free, free skill. Gift skill yeah absolutely and he wasted it on woodworking you totally wasted <laughs> yours you gotta be kidding me yeah <laughs> like be able to build like this beautiful chair how, how many wood- chairs are you gonna make if i'm good at woodworking <laughs> then your job becomes day. i make chairs well then people will come buy my chairs yeah that's, but do you want to be a master chair maker if i'm a master and people are paying enough money no that's not what i asked you are that's the assumption Okay, yeah, I'll see, That's why I did probably say in the beginning, and maybe you guys didn't notice it, when I said, it doesn't mean you're the best in the world. It just means that you have mastery over it. I know. Because cause that was a loophole that you guys could have thrown back if I said, oh, I'm a master pianist now. Now I, I can make my living playing the piano and filling up symphony halls. Well, that's not what we no, said, No, not necessarily. Yeah, that's not what I said. I no, know that's way, what I said. I know that's the that's, way you work. That's the that's clarification. The rules work. Yeah. Building furniture was kind of my segue into construction because, like, the first things I ever built was furniture. It was horrible. Shelves. <laughs> Shelving systems. <laughs> built, Those he, he took CMU blocks and then laid a 2 by 12 and then CMU blocks. And that's uh, that was your idea of building shelves. No, I, and that's why it was now more you want to be a master builder because you know... You were terrible at it oh, before. <laughs> I, I, I remember the first thing I built, and it was an abomination. 
I'm not surprised to hear that. I've built some pretty overzealous entertainment centers in my day. <laughs> Right, where it's like it was one of the, that's what I've built. I've gotten two. I mean, no, mine were great though because it was after I worked because, the wood yeah. shop. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, of all of us, you should. Act, yeah, but like hidden hinges and everything was hidden. And it was just the least practical piece of furniture ever. <laughs> was built. it like gargantuan? Oh yeah, and it was. It was huge. Is that back huge. when the TVs were tubed? Yeah, it was still a tube TV, but it fit like a fifty-inch tube TV. So there's this <laughs> giant hole in it, and then all the other stuff. And it's, that's hilarious. It was like thirty inches deep, eight feet tall, twelve feet wide. We moved it like twice and we were like, we got to get rid of this thing. <laughs> it stays with the house. <laughs> yeah. You nail it to the wall. Yeah. It's, a piece, it's, of, it's a piece of furniture. It's a piece of furniture. Yeah. It's a built in. You've got me thinking about the whole barbecue thing now. Nope. I'm not, no, I'm not, not going to change it. I'm not going to change it. I'm a cook. It. But I will say that another caveat for why, because I would like to be way better than I am. I really like it. Problem is, is I couldn't eat it all the time. My concern is that if you were to choose something that you really really liked would it lose the appeal that it currently holds because you can't do it right if all of a sudden i become a master like getting a job at disney world yeah it's like it's like <laughs> saying oh if your job on one hand they're like oh do a job you love and you never work a day in your life i go that's baloney yeah you do the thing that you're good at all of a sudden it's just what you do it takes out the joy it almost like it has to be a hobby the yeah. skill you have has to not, i would expect you to punch me in the face if i said I want my skill to be Revit, <laughs> right? That was last week when I told you that was a dumb yeah, one or whatever. that was a dumb one. No, Nick has now taken over worst <laughs> hypothetical answer ever. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 29, Architects Should Work Construction. Thank you to our guest, Nicholas Renard from DIG coming out here and spending time and chatting with us. If you like today's episode and can find it in your heart, please take the next 30 seconds and head on over to iTunes or your favorite listening app and subscribe so you get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, but only for feeling generous, please leave us some feedback as we'd really like to hear your thoughts on the show and a five-star, put the tools back where you found them rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Also, be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll attempt to reward you with our version of a blooper reel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you guys for having me. Cheers. Our pleasure. Yes. Cheers. You want to record that again? Live from Las Vegas. This is the Life of an Architect podcast. A dedicated... No. I know. (laughs) See? (laughs) Yeah, I'm recording again. I'm not on the speakers. You both are. But his doesn't. All the, as long as I'm, I'm on not, it, we're good. The, it might be better if he's not on it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm back got, to normal. You got turned down. I got, I'm going to turn up. <laughs>